Jehoiada is the high priest. Je, um, Je, Jehe, Je, Jehoshiba's husband. In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captives of the Karaites and the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. So he'd been hidden for seven years. And he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being in the gate, sure, and a third in the gate behind the guard shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come out, come on duty in force on the Sabbath and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king, each with his own weapon in his hand, and whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king where he when he goes out and when he comes in. And the captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they, they each brought his man, men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on the duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guard stood, <clears throat> every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar in the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put a crown on him and gave him the testimony, that is, the, the law, uh, the, 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 uh, the Pentateuch. <clears throat> and they proclaimed him the king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king, which, of course, is where that phrase comes from. When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard of the people, she went into the house of the Lord of the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing the trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason, treason. When Je then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put her to death with the sword, put to death the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and they, she went through the horse's entrance into the king's house, and there she was put to death. And Je Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people, that all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the uh, priest of Baal, before the altars, and the priest post watchmen over the house of the Lord. And he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down to the house of the Lord, marching to the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings, so all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. You may be seated. So we have entitled this uh, Political Intrigue, uh, something that's been going on, no doubt, since the beginning of time, pretty much. But uh, we see it here. Of course, Athaliah very uh, hypocritically yells treason when she realizes what's going on. But, of course, she had killed all of the legitimate uh, uh, line of David, the legitimate uh, heirs to the throne, uh, which was treason. And it certainly was uh, unbiblical or uh, not, it was against God's will. So we see her meeting her just reward, we might say. Uh, let's find my finger. 
let's just review last week. Um, we saw Jehu's reign. We saw that he was a zealot, but not really for the glory of the Lord, but for himself. And uh, that unlike zealousness and activity, the Lord wants obedience from the heart. And of course, it reminds me of Second Samuel 15, where Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to the fat of rams. And of course, burnt offerings and sacrifices were obedient. They were to do that, but they were doing it for all the wrong reasons. It was a show of religion, but their hearts are far from God, and we'll deal a little bit with that in our uh, next uh, message. And then we saw the Lord shows his strength by letting things get as weak as possible, yet he always comes out on top. It's he allowed all the descendants of David but one young child to be slain. But when you're in control of everything, it's no big deal. It's not like he almost, David's line almost was lost and, and God's whole plan of redemption fell apart. It didn't almost do anything. The Lord, because the Lord's in complete control of all that happens. And so that's just the way God does. That's why Jesus could be born in a stable and uh, look, look weak because none of that matters to a sovereign God. So we saw another example last week then of Satan's attempt to thwart God's redemptive plan by having Athaliah kill off David's line. We also pointed out the absolute sovereignty of God and allowing things to get down to one small boy before he steps in and brings the whole attempt to nothing. And today we want to look at, of course, at how Athaliah's plan fails, how the Lord brings it all to naught. And as we read that, it became, you know, it's pretty apparent. Verse 4 says the seventh year. Uh, I, I don't think that's, usually in the Bible, that's not insignificant. Seventh means the full completion, full fulfillment of something. And so what it tells me is that it's not just happened to be when uh, Athaliah was put to death and the Joash was put, the rightful king was put on uh, the throne is telling us that God's in control it, when in his time in the seventh year in the year of completeness this happens and I think that's just another way the Bible indicates who's in control it's also interesting that it's the work of the high priest who defeats the usurper and establishes the rightful king it, Jehoiada was the high priest and, uh, and of course so he would typify to some degree the, the Lord the rightful king, and uh, doing what is right, putting to death our enemy, which, of course, is Satan. Uh, in verse 17, he establishes a covenant. Uh, it's not the Mosaic covenant. It's, in other words, the covenant, I, I think, seems to be more of uh, a commitment to keep the original covenant. They had they had kind of letting everything fall apart, and they had worshipping the Baals, and, and so it's, it's like they were saying, making a vow that they were going to keep the covenant that they were supposed to uh, keep. Uh, you know, and that's what the, I think he's doing there in verse 17. We have uh, seen of late how the Lord works in his sovereignty, something that is mysterious and not always easy to understand, but we've seen some of the examples where he's told people what's going to happen, and they've taken that information and done something differently, uh, yet we find out that's exactly how the Lord uh, wanted his will to happen. It would have happened had they done what was right, but he also says that they're not going to do what's right, and so it's not going to turn out that way. We saw that, you know, remember, uh, with Elisha, and as he uh, 
was um, uh, not or not uh, anointing, but when uh, he was telling Haziel, remember what he was going to do about the with the king recover and all that. Um, and so here again, we see the Bible as you, as you read it and you read the details, you begin to put together how God works sovereignly according to His eternal counsels. Yet He uses uh, man; He uses men's fallen nature, their fallen wills. He uses secondary means, and yet He could still be sovereign, and that shouldn't shake us, even though it's hard for us sometimes to understand it. He could have caused Athaliah to die of a stroke or, or some other natural way. He, he, but he, you know, he could have not allowed the fall to ever take place. Uh, he, he could not allow Satan to do a lot of what he does. But of course, the, the, the point here is that it's his will that these things happen under his control. He did not create man hoping that he wasn't going to fall. He created man knowing full well he was going to fall because we know Christ was uh, ordained to redeem a people before the world was created, right? So none of that is apart from God's will. And what we have to remember is that God is doing all sorts of things in his redemptive plan that serves his purposes, that glorifies himself. And so while, it, you know, he, so in this case, it, it was for this woman to kill these boys and to reign for seven years and, uh, and, and that, and, until the rightful king was put back on the throne. It meant that innocent people were going to die. Uh, you know, it, it, that was part of God's will. So every time we forget this, and we think we know how things should be, or we know what God's will is, even though it's not been revealed to us, we usually fail rather miserably in our uh, duty before the Lord. Because somehow we think that because God is sovereign, and we are saved, that uh, he must intervene and remove our troubles. Uh, you know, a lot of people struggle with Christian suffering uh, because, they, you know, they don't understand it. And, of course, that's what's given rise to much of the health and wealth uh, gospel. But we forget that it's the struggle and the tribulation by which we are to glorify him. And, uh, you know, and it's... it's a lot of people struggle with that, but the, I don't think the Bible could be much more clear that um, God is not in the business of doing op- openly or miraculous things in this age, but in this age, he has called his people to look weak, to have their backs up against the wall, humanly speaking, to come to the to our wit's end, in a sense. Um and then by faith in the one who is in control, we, we conquer, we overcome. It doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily be delivered out of our problems, but we're going to, by faith, uh, be strong in the Lord. And that's, that's what he's called us to do. The Bible says it is through much tribulation that we enter the kingdom of God. And, and perhaps it's because some people think there's going to be a the tribulation, the, the church is going to be removed before the tribulation. No, the, the Bible never says the church can be removed before tribulation. We, all who live godly in Christ, will be persecuted, right? And, and, and when we get to later on in Matthew 5, when we're going through the Beatitudes, the, Jesus makes it very plain that you're going to be persecuted. But blessed is the man who's persecuted for righteousness' sake. It, it's okay. 
And that's, of course, the whole point. So, um, it's, it's understanding what the Bible teaches and expects of us and what the Lord is doing, uh, and, and to understand, to, to, to rely, to, to have enough confidence in the wisdom of God that He knows best even when things don't go the way we think they, they should, the way we would have done it. And so one way, uh, to point this out in our text is with Jehoshaphat, uh, this woman, the wife of Jehoiada. She sees this child in danger and she intervenes. Uh, and, and she's only mentioned here. She's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. She does her duty. She puts her life on the line, uh, very quietly. One verse is given to her in that sense and then she moves out of the way. That's all we ever hear of her again. And, and that's the way, I think it's a good example for us. Um, we might think that, well, we'll never have the opportunity to be on the front lines for Christ. Well, the front lines are everywhere a Christian is. And uh, just because we may never be famous doesn't mean that we're not on the front lines. Because any time we, you know, we think about our children in our church, we think about the lost around us, uh, and those who are being attacked by Satan, and if we guard our children, and we uh, minister to them, and each other in the church, and we minister to those we have opportunity to, that's the front lines. And it doesn't matter whether anybody else out of our little circle knows anything about us. The Lord does. And Jehoiada, to me, or excuse me, Jehoshima uh, is a, to me, just a an example of that. She does it, plays an extremely important part, and she's gone. She does her part. She was, uh, it would appear to be Athaliah's stepdaughter, and uh, so she was Joash, Joash's aunt, perhaps why she went to him and, and grabbed him quickly, because she was related to him, of course the wife of the high priest Jehoiada. And nothing shows conversion like understanding who your true family is and where your true loyalty lies. She did what was right. She, uh, it doesn't matter that she was, uh, again, kin to Athaliah. And, and to me, that's another uh, example to be pointed out here in that she does what's right without consideration to her own life or to her family. Of course, obviously, her husband was, in, uh, was uh, part of what she was doing. But my point here is that I've seen my share of people, for instance, leave churches because a family member left um, or because they were upset because a family member perhaps was uh, brought under discipline and removed from the church. Uh, you know, I, I've had at least, I think, twice been told. And, and the amount of times that I have been involved in church discipline probably you put on, you know, on one hand, right? So it's not like that's something we have done much of. But I, I know at least twice I've been told that if my so-and-so isn't good enough for the church, neither am I. Well, that completely misses the point. Uh, that is standing with family over the family of God and over what's right or wrong. Um, all you're doing is showing who your first love is. And I wonder why it doesn't cross their mind to stand with the church as a means to warn those that they supposedly love 
that you're in serious spiritual and in a seriously spiritual condition and uh and, and you need to think about why the church sees that they, they must discipline you in other words you have an opportunity to stay with the church and to warn them and all you do is coddle them and uh and, and appease their conscience in some way and so Jehoshaphat knows her duty and she does it without hesitation and that's right, I hope we as a church, we understand who God is, we understand what his will for us is, and we're, by his strength, willing to do it, come what may. You know, we stand in the Lord, don't stand in family. And, and I, you know, families couldn't be more important in a lot of ways. I, I understand family loyalty is not a bad thing. But it ends... <laughs> When it comes to obeying the Lord and doing what's right, and that, and, and it's amazing how many, even professing Christians, just can't seem to to deal with that. And uh, I think it'll be in in the next message where um, we, we'll read the, the well-known uh, passage in the New Testament that Jesus says that you know if your if your love for me doesn't seem like hate. Uh, to your parent, with your family, that something is terribly wrong. So back to our point, then the Lord doesn't need powerful, well-known people to do his will. Most of it is always done behind the scenes, out of the, the evening news. But, but the thing you gotta remember is that one day it will come to light. In other words, every good deed that's done for the Lord, I think, has eternal consequences. Uh, it will be known in glory. I've always felt uh, that uh, one of the things that will be done in eternal state is that God will will rewrite church history, or not church, world history, the history of mankind, and he'll we'll see what he's doing in, in bringing about redemption uh, through Christ. We'll see why everything happened the way it did. And I mean, and, and I'm speculating to some degree. I understand that, but to me. There could be nothing more interesting than having the chaos of this world that's been going on for however many years the world's been going on explain and to see why God allowed each little thing to happen and each person to do what they did, you know. And I think with our minds, we'll be able to appreciate that and, and grasp it, whereas now our minds probably wouldn't grasp half of it anyway. But I, but my point is, God doesn't forget anything, and He'll make things right. You know, so I think that's one reason why that was going to take place in some way. It's this passage is a little bit like Esther, right? We don't read about the Lord doing anything here, but we know the Lord is behind all this, and that, that's kind of what I've been saying all along. Is that you know, with Shashiba, she's going out doing this, doing that. It's the Lord preserving Joash's life. Just because we don't read about him that I'm going to do this and all that, he uses someone who's just maybe not thinking about doing God's will, just doing the right thing, trying to save her nephew or whatever. We, we know that it's the Lord behind all this. And so they keep him at the temple. And no doubt as he's raised in the temple, this helps him a lot to, to uh, in his early years, we'll see, to, to kind of put away the bales and to do what's right. Uh, we'll see next week, though, that he does not end well. So he becomes an example of someone who starts well but does not end well. And that's a 
that we'll look at next week, Lord willing. In verse 18, we have the results of getting back to the covenant as, as Jehoiada has them all kind of recommit themselves to the covenant that Israel was to, to keep and to, you know, Yahweh. Uh, they tear down all the idolatry. One, one thing's a little different than what we're going to see in, uh, with Jehu, who went around and killed all the Baal, prophets of Baal and so forth, is that the people are involved in this. The people joined. We read the people are rejoicing that the rightful king is in there. So it's, it's a, it's, it seems to be somewhat of a nationwide revival of sorts. And they're involved in tearing down uh, the Baal worship and all that. Um, and so the true king is hidden for a while. His enemies appear to be in control. But at the right time, he is revealed as a true king. So maybe a little eschatological. Uh, picture there as we think about uh, Christ who is the true king who is reigning and Satan is the prince of power of the air but we know that uh, the time will come when he will appear and all things will be made right but anyway maybe it's something to think about uh, <clears throat> an interesting verse in Philippians 4.22 <clears throat> where it says all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, or just Paul. And uh, it's, what's interesting there, in light of what I just said, is that in the very household of the king who persecuted the church was the church. So just like in the very uh, house of, of God in Israel, Joash was there all along, uh, so... We see this is how God's kingdom has always worked. <clears throat> it, it's everywhere. It's like yeast in dough, right? You don't see it, but you see the effects of it. So here you got the, the, the emperor trying to stamp out Christianity to some degree. <clears throat> and there's it's in his own household. There, there are saved people even in his own household. And I think that's how the gospel has been from the beginning. The more Satan tries to stamp it out, the more it spreads. It's like stumping on a fire in a field of dry grass. Uh, and there's a straw wind blowing. and all you really do is spreading it. And we, we see this like over in Acts 8. If you want to turn over there. <clears throat> Acts 8, chapter, uh, verse 3. Read a few verses here. Let's just read 3 and 4 to start with in, in, in Acts chapter 8. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So there's a, the, the trying to stamp out the church. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So he's trying to stamp out the church, and all he's doing is, st- is stomping on it. The sparks are flying. People are, you know, trying to escape, and, they, and but but they don't go and say, "Well, I better keep my mouth shut." Because my, I might lose my life. No, they just go somewhere else and start preaching the word and, and let the Lord take care of that. And that's how the church has always been. And shame on us when we, for whatever reasons, keep our mouth quiet about who we are and uh, refuse to talk about the Lord because we're afraid or ashamed or something. Look at chapter 11. Let's read verse 19. And those who were scattered because of the persecution 
that, that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. So there you see again, the scattering, the persecution, scattering of persecution leads to uh, the furtherance of the church. And then lastly here in Acts 12, verse 23, and the people were shouting, oh, this, you need to set this up. Herod had killed James. He's, um, you know, that seems to go over well, so he's, Looking for Peter, he tried. He's going to kill Peter. That didn't work, but he's definitely, you know, against against the church and against the, the disciples, right? And so he's out there one day delivering an oration. In verse twenty-two, the people were shouting, "The voice of a god and not a man!" Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. God's in control. Doesn't matter who's against it. Uh, the Lord, when He's ready, He'll destroy the, the ones who persecute the church, and the church will go on. And you know, we we don't know. We're, we're, we're living in a time when the church is being tried to be stamped out. Maybe we're living in a time when the church is increasing through that persecution. Uh, you might live through both of those times. You know, so that they yeah they come and go. And they always have, but what we see here is how the church goes, and we're take comfort in that. The Lord can smash the persecutors of Christ and his church like a cockroach. So the important thing is not whether this foreshadows the church age, but that we might remember that things are not always as they appear. To live by sight and not by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is to not grasp reality. And I don't think there's anything more important that I can say as a pastor than to impress upon everybody under the sound of my voice that reality is defined by what we read in God's word. And to not let yourself get sidetracked because, you know, some scientist thinks he's discovered something whether it be evolutionary or uh, whatever, uh, or what the politicians are trying to do, uh, this is the you know, or, or what the uh, mainly the, the culture and political correctness, which is kind of the new dictator, it seems like in our country. Whatever they say is reality, it has no bearing on anything. Reality, the explanation of reality, does not lie in Washington or in Wall Street, or in political correctness, um, whatever you come across at home or at work, um, whatever they say has no, no bearing, should have no bearing on our understanding of reality. There's only one standard of truth, and it isn't found in the world. Now, I don't mean by that, that... Uh, there isn't real science and real things out there in the world. There is, there are, but there's much truth out there that we don't find in God's word. And by that I mean factual things. You know, whether it be scientific or whatever subject you want to talk. The Bible doesn't deal with every piece of information that's out in the universe, right? But what I'm saying is that the conditions, well for instance, the conditions that Washington has placed upon us are 
real. I'm not saying that they're not, it's not reality. I'm saying, um, you know, that, that, that their purpose and meaning and usefulness can't be explained without the Bible. So what they're doing is real. Persecution is real. Political correctness is, is real. You know, but the only way to understand it is from the Word of God. And as soon as you let somebody or something influence you over that, you will fall into darkness, into some measure of darkness. And that's exactly why most public education fails miserably, because it fills our children's heads with facts that can't be properly understood apart from the Word of God. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't teach along with their indoctrination facts, but the problem is, is that you, when you teach the truth or, you know, factual information, and at the same time you're, t- you're denying God, you're saying that there is no God, all you're doing is confusing the child, and you're keeping him in darkness, and whether he's able to function by getting a job or using his, that education is all, is one thing, but he's still walking in darkness because he doesn't have any sense of reality. And so to live for the flesh is to forget who is secretly reigning in this temple, we might say, if we kind of think of our text here. Um, Ephesians one twenty that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him on his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So he's on his throne, and he's, he is the one reigning, but that doesn't mean there's not rule and authority and power and dominion under him, that are, they're doing their own thing, most not with, any, with, with him in mind at all. He's reigning, but he's reigning out of sight. But we're being told. Remember, that's, remember a few weeks ago when I said, we don't need to have our eyes open to the chariots of angels around us like uh, Elijah's son, Elisha's uh, servant, because we read about it in Scripture. And so therefore we know they're there because we read about it, right? So here we're reading about who is really reigning, and that while he's reigning, uh, there will there are at this point in this um, uh, age other lesser powers, but 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 understand who's really truly at reigning, and, and that's great comfort to us, a great, great strength for us. So Joash here is, is interested and is coordinated as he holds the word of God, and that's of course how Christ rules his people through his word based on truth. Verse 17, when truth reigns, that which is false must be thrown down. And it's the job of all Christians to, and I think that as, as we see the, the Israelites going around destroying the temples of Baal and, and putting to death of those uh, priests and so forth, we are reminded, we see in picture form what Christians do. Paul tells us that Christians are to destroy the strongholds of worldly philosophy and lies. We don't Go around killing people because the kingdom of God is not spread through killing people or forcing people. It's, it's spread through the gospel, through truth. So we, that's why we have to know and believe the word of God because you can't, and, and we live in an age which is so obvious 
where this is happening, where you've got people out there who are denying the truth of God's word, the truth of the world that God has made us, and it's up for Christians to stand up and say, no, there's only two genders, or you know, whatever the situation might be. So it's our job to destroy the strongholds of worldly philosophy. And it's a messy job, and it means it's getting our hands dirty. It means losing friends. It means being made fun of. It means uh, not being able to have certain jobs you'd like to have, you know, or careers or whatever. We have to do unpleasant things. But if we think that all being a Christian is is just meeting with our uh, friends and family a couple of times a week, to discuss religion, you know, whatever, however people, some people think of church. Um, no, that's not what Christianity is. It's mortifying the flesh. It's, it's proclaiming the gospel. It's ministering to people. It's, it's living, it's being a light in darkness. So she, you know, of course in verse 14, she, when she finds out what's going on, she's crying trees and trees. And you always wonder how she can say that with a straight face. And yet we know that Satan, even now, remains rebellious, even even though he's already been defeated at the cross and the resurrection. Um, verse 15, one of the clearest marks of, of, in the Old Testament of true covenant keeping is loyalty and worship to God alone. And I kind of already said this, the northern kingdom shows a partial loyalty uh, but to, to Yahweh, but we know that a partial loyalty to, to Yahweh is no real loyalty because they get rid of Baal, but they still worship God the way they want to, in a fleshly uh, way, not down in Jerusalem that they're supposed to. And so the result is that the North still is serving false gods. The reforms of Jehu really didn't accomplish anything. And yet we see a, a, a more truer sense of revival here. Um, but these uh, Jews did here was what they knew was their duty. In fact, what they're doing here is not some rash thing, but if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 13, let's start reading in verse 6. Um, if your brother, the son of your mother, now again, this goes back to what I was saying before, right? Or the son of your daughter, or um, your son or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is at your, who is as your own soul entices you secretly saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods of the people who are around you, whether near or far off from you, from the end of the, one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall you, your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be the first against him to put to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, this was the old covenant, and it was, it was in some senses, a harsher time, at least physically speaking, right? But, but you can't, you, you can see Jesus' words, coinciding with this when he, he says if you don't hate your mother or your father or whatever because if you're the wife that you embrace if your child wants you to follow an idolatry some other god and not the true god 
it, it, it's not that you're just to kill him. You're to take him before the people, and you're to be the first one to cast the stone. Now, that's rough. But I think that, again, I thank God we don't live like that. That, that was for a time. It, it served a great purpose. It, it, it's teaching us some very important things that I'm trying to explain right now. I'm glad I don't have to. I don't live like that. those times. Yes, Peter said, even our fathers are not able to bear. I think this would, you know, living under the old covenant. I think this is an example he's probably talking about. It was rough. But we can't miss the point. I said earlier, if you if you have a your most dearest friend or dearest a loved one is not a Christian, you have to again reality. You know they hate your God. They hate Christ. And you've got to be able to handle that and to deal accordingly with that and stand with the church if there was discipline or stand with the Christians in, in calling out sin or whatever. That's where your loyalty lies. Not with the wife that you embrace. Now it doesn't mean you divorce her, you know, they're still your wife. But spiritually you understand what reality is. And so, you see that in this passages like this, that this is, the, the, the lesson here is, uh, showing us these things. And Jesus, I think, brings this over, as I said, you know, in, uh, earlier. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, and child, or brother, sister, yes, even his own life, because so it's not just, you know, them against him, but you, you, if you see it in your own heart, you, you hate it, you, you treat it the same. Otherwise, it's just hypocrisy. You cannot be my disciple. In other words, you just put Christ first. It's not rocket science. It's just that he's God. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So that's what he said. Christian life is not just all pleasantries. It, it, it's real. So he makes, he brings us over into the New Testament setting. In a real sense, nothing has changed except we, we don't kill to spread the kingdom like they were in a sense in the Old Testament did. We, we love and we preach and we guard ourselves by removing their influence. But in the New Testament, we're the dead ones. We are killing ourselves. We are mortifying the flesh. In the Old Testament, they killed, literally killed their enemies, but those are pictures of what the spiritual reality is. So in the New Testament, we're the dead ones. We're the living sacrifice, right? We're to mortify ourselves because the sin's within us. That The sin's not without us. And so they, they are pictures of a spiritual battle of mortifying the flesh because our enemy is always within, not really in other people in that sense, at least when we're talking about sin. So in the New Testament, we're the dead ones. We die to the world. We don't remove the world from us. Again, so you see the difference there. So in typical fashion, we have another passage that teaches of God's plan of redemption. We see God working these things out until the time of Christ. Um, Next week, we'll see Joash not being the real spiritual leader of the country, but Jehoiada. He was the one, as soon as Jehoiada dies, it all falls apart. But it's kind of the Old Testament theme that no, no matter what kind of king it is, good or bad, they all fall far short of the king that we need, of course, and that's Jesus Christ. All right, so we'll stop there.
any questions or comments. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to be here today and thankful for a, a nice warm building that we can uh, meet in on a day like this. We pray for traveling mercies as we go home later. And uh, we just pray that you might bless our efforts here, and edify your people this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.